Welcome to Wayward Muse. I'm your host, Stephen. Here we cover anything and everything related to the restaurant industry with award-winning guests. If you enjoy this content, make sure to like, subscribe, and share it. These episodes are made possible because of you, so consider donating at yourwaywardmuse.com. As an extra thank you, we are giving you 10% off our entire store catalog that includes custom bar gear and exclusive merch. Just use code listen to your muse and start saving. As always, 20% of anything we make goes to charities that support our industry in these crazy times. We are cutting a check at the end of the month, so shop today. This episode is brought to you by Salsa Matcha by Chef Rishi. Salsa Matcha is the nutty, do-anything sauce you didn't know you needed. It hails from the state of Veracruz in Mexico. It'll completely shake up your taste buds and your cooking. Brighten up your dishes with three different expressions of this must-have flavorful product. Personally, I put it on everything. And I mean everything. Have it delivered anywhere in the U.S. Just go to yourwaywardmuse.com slash matcha by Rishi. Midwest-raised, James Beard Award-winning, Chef Chris Shepard has helped change the landscape of the Houston culinary scene since opening Underbelly in 2012. In 2015, he launched Southern Smoke, a charity that has aided in such causes as multiple sclerosis, Hurricane Harvey, and the COVID-19 pandemic. Chef, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. Now, I know those two sentences list amazing accomplishments, but it can hardly describe a, a career or oneself. Can you tell us more about your time in the restaurant industry? Uh, you know, I, I grew up in Oklahoma um, and it, it was, I started working, didn't really know what I wanted to do, if you, was, if you could say, uh, for a living. Um, and I, I legitimately took a job as washing dishes in a sushi bar in Tulsa in 1992, probably, um, maybe 93. Uh, and kind of worked my way through the kitchen at one point and then turned it into um, working in the li- on the line. And like, I really, you know, worked the grill and the walk and I asked if I could work uh, behind the sushi bar and, and my boss Nobu. Uh, looked at me and was like, uh, no, uh, but it's not what people expect when they come into a, a rest, you know, a sushi bar and, and, you know, mid early nineties, I was like, yeah, totally get it. He's like, but I'm going to teach you everything that you need to know. And I think that you should go to culinary school. And I was like, what is that? Like I hadn't, I didn't even know what culinary school was. Um, and so uh, ended up moving down here to Houston. My parents had moved here. So I was like, you know what, I'll go to school. I'll, I'll take that free rent basically. And, um, and kind of just learn as much as I can. Um, and while I'm going to school and, and so it, it, um, Houston for the first two years was a place that I was like, you know what, I'm not going to be here long. You know, I'm going to, um, I'll probably, I don't know. I thought I'd move back to Tulsa and that just didn't happen. I ended up staying here and, and, um, loving it and really loving the culture and the people and uh, took a few jobs. And then I ended up working for the Brennan family um, for 
man, nine years. So the Brennans out of New or Commander's Palace out of New Orleans. Um, they have a the Brennans here in Houston, and it was kind of like my introduction to like high end dining, massive amounts of like people because you know the dining room sat five hundred people like between upstairs and downstairs and all the private dining rooms is so, a uh, really understanding how to run a restaurant. <laughs> um, and then uh, at one point. Uh, after about seven years, I ended up taking over the wine program there and uh, worked the floor as the psalm and the wine buyer. And uh, then a friend of mine that I went to culinary school with was like, you see both sides. You see front of the house and back of the house. Do you want to, we're going to open up a new restaurant. Do you want to come, you know, run that? And I was like, yeah. Because at that point, like most people kind of thought that I stepped away from the kitchen while some people just, you know, wine people wanted to talk to me about food and chefs wanted to talk to me about wine. And so it was kind of a weird paradox for me in life at that point. But, um, you know, I, I went and opened up a restaurant called Catalan uh, and really started to focus more into uh, the flavors of our city and the people that exist here and that live here and have chosen to, to move to, to this area. <clears throat> and um, did that for about four years and then realized I needed to do my own thing. <clears throat> so I uh, started working on Underbelly, um, which is the, we, I wanted to talk about the story of Houston food and what that meant because people live on freeways in this city. And so they drive into downtown, you know, to work and then they go back out to the suburbs. And there's so much of this beautiful part of the city that everybody misses. Um, and so I wanted to kind of highlight that all of the little parts of the city that are beautiful to me and have delicious food. And, um, and that was the goal. And so, uh, you know, it was learning from f families in this city, you know, um, that would teach me kind of what they knew and ask me like, how do you do this? And so we had this loving relationship and we still do. So it's like, you know, whether it be, um, you know, Jacqueline Pham from Saigon Pagalak or, you know, Trung over at Crawfish Noodles or AJ the Patels, like they would, you know, anytime I had a question about Indian food, she's like, you know, AJ, be like, come talk to my mom. And so <laughs> I'd sit with, you know, auntie and we'd have tea for two hours and just talk. And, you know, they talk about business and how I did business and how we ran things. And then it was like, okay, what'd you want? I was like, well, I just really want to know about like, this and she's like she taught me a lot about just how to understand food and how to understand indian cuisine and so it was it, you know at one point it was like having a vietnamese family and a Sichuan family and a korean family and an indian family that just kind of showed me their ways and it was what i wanted to show was their ways you know not their dishes for sure but like what i learned from them and how do you grow together and so um when we built Underbelly, I was like, I want a map of our city. And um, Bobby Hugel, one of my partners at the time, was like, well, I think we should do that through photo. I was like, that's awesome. So we went around and, and so when you walked in the restaurant, there was 50 photos that were framed on the wall and they were um, put by area codes or zip codes of the city. And uh, it was all the people and places that really impressed me and, and made me want to be better and learn more about our city and that people that I thought were very important to this city. Um, and so on, like when you got the check presenter, it would talk about every one of those places 
it was kind of a fold out and it would have like these these places this is what you should get this is who you should talk to and then at the end it was like thank you for coming we would love to have you back but we politely request that you visit at least one of these places before you do um because it's just like we wanted to show our our city and what we are um so it was it's fun and that's still the kind of the philosophy at ub preserve um, so we opened up Hay Merchant, which is a craft beer bar, kind of um, chicken wings, beer. Um, it's definitely become more of a food-driven destination than beer at this point over the past eight years. But um, Hay Merchant and Underbelly are combined in a 10,000-square-foot building, separate kitchens, different dining rooms, different staff, two totally different restaurants, but you can just basically pass through a door and you're in one or the other. Um, and then I had a unique opportunity down the street to open a restaurant uh, with a five-year lease, which was in pretty stupid, but um, you know it was going to be fun, and it turned out to t- teach us all a lot of things, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. But I said I wanted to change the concept every year um, for those five years to kind of figure out what I wanted to do when we grew up. Um, so we opened up with a steakhouse first year and then went into romance languages, a focus on French, Italian, and Spanish, and then uh, Mediterranean, and then uh, Gulf Coast. And then we went back to Mediterranean and when the pandemic came in and now we're on Southern Comfort. Uh, and so, you know, we were gonna do this thing called lightning round where it was just gonna be, we were gonna change whenever we wanted, whatever we wanted. And it was, you know, but that literally was going to happen and then we got, you know, all the restaurants shut down. Um, so after the first rendition of that, which was steak, um, we started looking into building a steakhouse because it was fun. It was not your average steakhouse. It was just totally different. Um, and, you know, looking at what was ahead of us, we found a spot and it was right down the street and, you know, it would have been a massive build out. I was like, look, I can't continue to to be the chef at these restaurants. I can't stand behind the line and or on the other side of the pass. And if we're going to grow this company, so I've made the decision to um, close Underbelly and gut it and and uh, redo it, turn it into the steakhouse, which is called Georgia James, which is named after my mother and father. Um, and but I still needed that I think we all did as a company still needed that underbelly philosophy. And so we opened up a small restaurant called UB Preserve uh, right down the street, which all of us in the company call it. Uh, underbelly was just short UB, um, but we wanted to preserve what underbelly is to us. And so that's a small little 70 seat restaurant. So that's what the restaurant world right there. That's a great summation. I, I didn't know that you had spent time on the floor as a SOM. That does give you an excellent perspective on trying to see the the best and the worst of both sides. If there was um like a lesson you learned from your time in the front of house that you might be able to pass down to people, is there a certain challenge that you were able to overcome during that time? Yeah, you know what? There's too much front of the house, back of the house BS. Um, and is, if you can understand, I think that we've done a good job of that since then of we all work together. Let's respect it and love each other and go as a family and as a team. I think that, you know, that would, to me was kind of the biggest thing was not having that, um, you know, front back issue. 
it's, it has it can't exist. I've noticed in the restaurants that I've worked at, uh, a key thing that the most successful of them all have is a great camaraderie between every member of staff from the porter on up. Everyone should be able to know each other and realize that they're all working together for the same goal. Couldn't agree more. You walk in, you say hello. You say goodbye when you leave. Like That's life. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. You've also been known as a champion of the Houston culinary scene. I was wondering if you might be able to dive into specifics about what specifically inspires you about the city. The people. I mean, that's the stories of the people that are here, that chose to be here, that moved here, that are here, that chose to spend their time opening up a restaurant and doing crazy things like that. Like, I think that um, to me, it was, uh, I, I love it. I absolutely love to see people doing what they love to do. Um, and no matter how hard it is, they're going to strive to make it the best. And <clears throat> I mean, whether it's mom and pop or, or, you know, high end or whatever, it doesn't matter to me. I just, I think that everybody has their, their calling and what they're doing. And it makes me really excited. And, and I think that in Houston, we have so many different cultures and that we have so many different styles and we have such a great bread basket of, of farming and, and, you know, the Gulf is in our backyard and, um, you know, you can just, it's, it's beautiful. You know, it really is just beautiful. So. I mean, I read somewhere that a, a quarter of Houston's residents are born in another country. That's okay. an amazing statistic that show the diversity and the, the range of experiences that your city has to offer. I think it's like 87 languages spoken. Which is just wild, especially considering some cities where you can barely make it out of like three. So yeah. props to Houston. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful city. When you say a quarter of it, I would expect more than that, really. I Yeah, I, mean, I would I would probably say a quarter, you know, that, that they know of or at yeah, the time of the, yeah, cool. that, that article. Houston, like we don't have a, a majority ethnic population. Like mm-hmm. it's just like equal across the board, which is, I think, when you start to have that, it really, um, it showcases your city really well. If you were to... It's really hard to decide where you're going to go eat. Yeah, I was actually just about to ask that. If you had to pick, like, let's let's try and narrow it down, like five very different, uh, authentic and, and unique places to dine in Houston, would you have a short list? Five, yeah. I, I mean, that's hard. I, I mean, mean I can give you five like a culture, right? Like that's mm-hmm. that's. A, I think that um, crawfish and noodles, I think, is very unique to this city. I think that that's kind of the, the beginning of, of the Viet Cajun style influences. Um, you know, where you know you started talking about seventy four, seventy five, when the migration of the Vietnamese into Houston really started to happen. The Catholic Church bringing them in. Um, and, you know, also understanding that, like, this is the perfect climate for, for, for where, where, you know, when they started to move, like, where, well, it's like our home, you know, and then they, you know, the, the Vietnamese culture kind of settled in and started in the shrimping industry and the fishing industry. And then, like, it just sprawled out. And I think, you know, having the second largest Vietnamese population in the country, like, which is pretty much, I would say, probably the second largest Vietnamese population outside of Vietnam, um, I think is a beautiful thing, right? And, mm-hmm. and when you start to see that, like 
the amalgamation of like understanding, okay, what is Cajun food? Wait, we don't have crawfish in Vietnam, but we have all these little uh, oak or uh, snails and clams and shrimp. And, you know, you sit communally and sit around and, and have food together and, and, and talk and drink beer on the street. Well, that's, oh, that's a crawfish boil. Mm-hmm. You know, that's everything of what a crawfish boil is. And so that it makes sense that that just kind of went straight into it and took off. Yeah, the meshing of those two things does seem to work out really nicely. I have been dying to get down there to try one of those restaurants. Um, any others that you might? Uh, you know, Saigon Pagalak again, you know, that's, uh, I, you know, I, I tended like a lot of Vietnamese food, which yeah. is pretty amazing. But um, Saigon Pagalak does, a, you know, the like the historically kind of royal uh, seven courses of beef, which is awesome. Um, Cali sandwiches, there wouldn't be a bond me in this city without them. Um, and, and it's just so good. Um, and then you start talking about, um, high Kang or, or, um, Harbor seafood. Like you go down to high Kang and it's like, you want to pull a Dungeness crab out of the tank? Let's go. You want uh-huh. King? Cool. You want live spot prawns? You want live grouper? Like, and then like traditional, just, uh, Cantonese style cuisine. Like it's so good. Then you go down to London Sizzle and get this British curry house. I mean, I can go on all day. We'll have to talk further later and we'll just get a short list put up on my website so that way people can find it. Yeah. You know what? Go to the UB Preserve website and it's on there. It's just Houston Love. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Um, this kind of leads me into our next question, the, your list of all the Vietnamese places. I was going to ask, is there a certain population in Houston that – um, has the biggest effect on your cooking? No, I would say Vietnamese. Yeah, I know. You, I know you went to Southeast Asia and to Vietnam to to better understand Houston. Mm-hmm. What was that like? It's amazing, like absolutely amazing. Like, um, and you know, it was like what because you start talking about the food, right? And, and it's all about the food. But I mean, it's not really. It's all about the people with the food. But um, you start to look at it, and all of a sudden, like you realize that for the most part for the Vietnamese influence of food in the city stopped, right? Mm-hmm. After 75 or 76, probably eighties, literally eighties, like that influence kind of stopped because you talk about first generation. Now you've got second generation and third generation kids, but like in Vietnam, the street food and the culture of food didn't stop. So now you're starting to see the third generation or maybe just the second generation, the kids um, starting to go back to Vietnam, seeing what's going on over there and coming back and, and doing it here, which I think is really cool to see. Cause you know, you start to see broken up raw spring roll wrappers that are now thrown into bags with like shrimp and uh, like seasoning and liquid. So it kind of it gets like, it's like a crispy little salad. You're starting to see these little tea shops and, and snack parlors start to pop up when you didn't see that before. And it must be interesting too, because the second generation is coming in with the understanding of Houston and, and their deep rooted history in Vietnam. And they're able to blend those two things so beautifully. And it's created yeah. cuisine that, you know, people talk about all over this country. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> it really is cool. Um, I don't think I want to live in another city right now. So, Chris, um, 
to shift gears a little bit, I, I wanted to discuss uh, the journey that you know every restaurant has had over the past year, and I wanted to know what your experience was in trying to create a, a post-pandemic style restaurant. Would you have any advice for other restaurateurs who are adjusting to continue to provide hospitality? I mean, keep your head down, do what you're doing, understand that it's like, I, you know, I talk about it all the time. It's like, you know, people are like, how can we support your restaurants? I'm like, well, go eat, but, you know, do take out if you can. Like, I know a lot of places you can't go out. I mean, I, I feel at some point, like people are learning how to cook. So we need to do something better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a matter of keep pushing, right? Don't give up. And, and then you start to see like, Look at opportunities like we're looking at opportunities every day and looking at how can we better our business because, you know, we are 50, 60 percent in, in loss of revenue. And, and why would I open another spot? Well, because I got I still have team members that need to work. And mm-hmm. So let's, let's try and create something for the future, because as soon as we come out of this, I feel like it's going to be the roaring 20s, hopefully. But See, that's what I was thinking. If you look at history, the biggest boom for you know, going out happened immediately after the influenza pandemic. So I think there's a lot of hope once everyone gets vaccinated that we could have hopefully one of the greatest renaissances of restaurants that we've seen since then. Yeah, let's not follow it up like they did, but back then. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to go to the point where they try and outlaw us again. That would be unfortunate. <laughs> um, but I think that we're, we're getting there. And um, just keep your head down and be strong. Keep going and have people around you that you trust and believe and you'll get through it. Mm-hmm. So to in summation, if there was a cardinal lesson for you and your restaurant group about 2020 moving into 2021, what would you uh, say it was and what would you be able to share? I mean, we did everything. We put meals into grocery stores. We do Zoom classes all the time. You know, I always say you I saw when this all started, it's like too too small to fail, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're too dumb to fail, right? I'm gonna we're gonna figure out every way that we could possibly do to keep going, and and that's you know they always use that word pivot, and I think that we we wore out the dance floor. We hope you enjoyed part one of Chris Shepard. Part two is coming next week, where we dive deep into what makes up southern smoke if you like this content make sure to like subscribe share help us keep this cool thing going see you next time